right. Happy Sunday, Calvary Church. Good morning to everybody. I hope that you're doing well. I'm excited to see you and uh, just grateful for what God has in store. And again, thankful for, man, all the volunteers who this morning got here early to make sure all this tech was working and practice the songs they led us through. Grateful for all the folks who are hanging out with a bunch of your kids right now so that uh, you don't have to, right? Um, I know some of you enjoy it so Oh, look at that. <clears throat> some of you enjoy it so much, you're tempted to leave them here with us. Um, <clears throat> we love them, but not that much. So, you know, it's like the airport. Make sure you check the seat back in front of you and get all your items on your way off the plane. So, hey, uh, a couple of quick announcements. <clears throat> We'd encourage you to grab a bulletin. We challenge you to do that because there's a lot of stuff coming up. And in a bunch of our ministries, whether that's our ministries for moms of preschoolers, they have a great event coming up in a month or so, whether it's uh, our men who have men's night, whether it's our ladies in different Bible studies throughout the week and events, we're doing an outreach event for our kids, Lego 500, um, not just for your kids, but hopefully kids that your kids play t-ball with and go to school with um, and do ballet with. Um, we have some stuff like that. Um, I'm just looking in the back. I think we're good. I'm looking who's in the audience. If we have like an EMT or a doctor, maybe just wander that way would be good. Um, okay. <clears throat> I think we're good. Uh, there you go. All right, we're good. They're good. Everybody's good. I'm watching. I got eyes like a hawk up here. I know what every single one of you is doing at every single moment. I know right now who's playing Wordle. I do. <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing gift that I have. Uh, we encourage you to grab the bulletin and uh, check that out because there are a ton of great things coming up we want you to be part of, and we do a lot to let you know that. And in the bulletin, there's a section for notes. And we're going through the book of Revelation, and we want this to be helpful for, to you. And for me personally, I'm not smart enough to remember things a lot of times if I don't write them down. And so we have an opportunity through the bulletin for a hard copy or even for our app. Every week we have sermon notes. And so everything that's on the screen is what we present, and uh, we'll be in there for you to take notes on, okay? So I encourage you to do that. Grab bulletin. Secondly, on the way in, <clears throat> you may have noticed a bin filled with diapers. That is not because we're having a budget crisis at Calvary Church and don't have any diapers for our nursery, okay, just in case some of you are worried. That's because we have an amazing opportunity to partner with a local ministry whose whole purpose is to help serve, support, encourage moms and dads who have decided to keep their babies instead of aborting them. And that is a tough, obviously, challenge, and then there's a lot of challenges for folks who, with a financial um, burden of a baby and all the implications of having another life to provide for, there's this amazing organization that wants to help them and support them and resource them. And you and I have a chance to partner with them in that. So we're collecting diapers for the next three weeks and wipes. And so, man, so great to see that filled up. Love for you to keep bringing them in. And we're going to be bringing over a big load over to Hope Line to be distributed to a bunch of moms and dads in the community. And, and you will be able to show tangibly God's love to them because that's what we want to do at Calvary. We want to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And so that's a great way to impact people around us in this community with God's love. And so thank you for your participation in that. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump into uh, the text today in Revelation. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity once again to come to your word and to open it up. And um, 
We pray as we do that we will uh, receive the truth you have for us this morning, Father. Um, We pray for the people in the room this morning who may have things going on in their lives, uh, that you will meet them where they are, that you will give your peace, that you will give guidance as they're making decisions, that they will feel your presence and your hand that's on them. Um, We pray for our country, Lord, with unrest um, and disorder and things that are not the way they should be and pain. Um, Father, you're a God of peace, and our country needs peace, and our world needs peace. And we're thankful that you're a God who promises us that one day all people from every tribe and every nation, we will all be celebrating before your throne together, Father, uh, worshiping Jesus who's died for every single one of us. And so uh, we know you're near to the brokenhearted, Father, and so that's my prayer for people in the room this morning and people in our country and people in our world. I pray for marriages in this room this morning. I pray for parents in this room just that you'll work, Father, in our lives. Thank you that we can come to truth to know what you would have for us. And so uh, I do pray the truth will be spoken today. And I'm grateful for what you're doing in our body. And I pray this in the name of our King. Amen. <clears throat> I prayed that prayer last week, the truth will be spoken. And somebody came up to me and said, you lied. Well, they didn't quite say that because they were very respectful. And I loved it because it was a teenager. So that was good. <clears throat> and they very respectfully said, in your illustration, you gave this World Series things about like the Yankees playing the Red Sox in Boston, and you know that could never ever happen, right? And so, truth was spoken as I, you know, had my little baseball playoff things off. Hopefully, we'll make sure truth spoke today. We're in a study in Revelation, and if you're new to us and visiting today, what we do at Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible, and we work through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We kicked off the book of Revelation in the fall, and we're going to be in it um, for, man, you know, summer or late fall coming up. We're going to be in it a while. It's a challenging book, and it's a book that has a ton of application, a ton of hope, and it's also a book that has some strange and unique and weird and uncomfortable things in it. And so we're just taking our time going through it and walking through it. And so if you're joining us, that's what you jumped in. If it's your first Sunday to Calvary, woo, you picked an amazing Sunday to join us as we think about a lot of uh, uh, unpleasant things that are coming down the road. But hey, it is what it is. So when people think about the end of the world, many times there's this reference, even if people don't come to church or has never cracked open a Bible, there's often a reference when we think about the end of the world to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Anybody ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse before? Well, if you've done anything in pop culture, you've probably heard about it because we could literally spend the rest of the sermon talking about illustrations of when this phrase, when these folks have shown up in pop culture. It's in movies. The Simpsons had an episode where the four horsemen of the apocalypse visited. There is a movie called X-Men of the Apocalypse where Apocalypse was this guy who was coming to destroy something and joining with him in his path of destruction were the four horsemen. Tombstone. I know I'm dating myself, but I don't care, okay? Because Tombstone was a great movie from the 80s with Val Kilmer. There's my, I'm your Huckleberry, I don't know. But in the very first opening scene of this Western, that was so popular at the time, 
There's a reference to one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Maybe you've never watched movies or TV shows, but maybe you watched wrestling. And for any aficionados of the amazing sport of wrestling, there were, back in the 80s, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? With the amazing Ric Flair and others. It's not just movie, it's not just wrestling. Comic books, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had four horsemen. There are so many musical bands that have songs about the four. I mean, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of bands and songs that reference the four horsemen. A few that you may be familiar with are Johnny Cash, Metallica. Uh, Johnny Cash, The Clash, and Metallica all sing a song about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then there's this famous piece of artwork. It's by a guy named Albrecht Dürer, and it's a woodcutting, and it's pretty well known, but here is this famous piece of art depicting the four <clears throat> horsemen of the apocalypse. Man, these four horsemen are uh, a reference that comes from the book of Revelation. And so today, what we're going to kind of spend some time thinking about is, well, what does Revelation tell us about those guys, right? We're going to think about that in today's text, and we're going to see some other truths and some other events and some other details that surround the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, and more than just learning facts about these four guys, what we're going to do is what we try to do every week is think about, okay, that's great, but in 2023, with my life and with what I'm facing today and with what I'm going through today, what does any of that have to do with me, right? What are the truths from the book of Revelation about the four horsemen of the apocalypse? And what do those truths have to do with my life, my story, and what do they have to do with your lives and your story today? So we're going to be in Revelation 6, chapter 6, and over the next two weeks... And I've set a record. <clears throat> I've now been in Revelation 6. It'll be a total of four weeks before we're done this. I don't, I've never done this in my life. This is a, we should have some confetti or something, right? So over the next two weeks, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6. We were there for the past two weeks as we've been thinking about this thing, the tribulation's coming, and then we kind of spent two weeks thinking about, are Christians going to be here? Are we not going to be here? We walked through all that for two weeks, so if you're interested in that, you can watch the sermons on that. But here's what we're going to look at over the next two weeks ourselves. We're going to think about Revelation 6, the four horsemen, two possibilities, six events in the tribulation, and then five realities that have very practical implication for my life and for your life. So two possibilities, then we're going to see six events in the tribulation and five realities for my life and for your life. So Revelation 6 and what we said... You're going to get tired of me saying this and you guys hearing this, but when we got into Revelation 5, it, in our opinion, it is a, a starting to look at things that are yet to come. There's four different ways that you can view the book of Revelation. We've talked a lot about that. And what we're taking is a futurist view. In two years from now, you're going to remember, I don't know a daggum thing about the book of Revelation, but I know we took a futurist view of Calvary. We're taking a futurist view. We're saying these are things that are yet to come. And we're looking at that about the tribulation and all sorts of other things. And so the first possibility and the one that we're looking at as we jump today and as we're moving into in earnest the tribulation is that Revelation 6 describes events occurring in the tribulation. One possibility of how you interpret what we're going to get into and kind of the way we're interpreting the whole book is that for today's text, Revelation 6 describes events occurring 
in the tribulation. That's the approach I think is correct. That's the approach a lot of scholars and theologians think is correct, but that's not an approach that everybody thinks is correct. And so just for um, <clears throat> purposes of educating you and purposes of letting you know what another perspective on this is, uh, some people think that the things that we're going to start to study today and study over the next few weeks that have to do with the tribulation aren't describing things that are yet to come, that they're actually not describing things in a future tribulation, but some people think that they're descriptions of what you and I are facing now. There's a huge block of people, orthodox, evangelical, Christian, godly people, who very well could be right, who'll say, no, this isn't describing a future unique event called the tribulation, but this, this is just a series of descriptions of things that Christians after Jesus will experience until Jesus comes back to earth a second time. And so under that view, some of the things that we're going to read today are descriptions of what <clears throat> we may be facing in this current moment. So the second possibility, which we're not taking, is that what we're going to read today describes events we are experiencing now and that we will continue to experience until Jesus returns. Again, that's not our perspective that we're taking, but I do just want to let you know that there is a different way of looking at that. So, taking our futurist perspective, taking that Revelation 6 describes what's going to happen during that tribulation period, what does it tell us about what takes place? It's going to list six events, six different things that are chronological things that take place within the tribulation. And we're only going to study the first four today. We're only going to study the things that are associated with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then we'll look at the others next week. Each of the events, like we set up a few weeks ago, is associated with this opening of a seal. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was found worthy. The song we ended with is affirming. It comes right out of Revelation. We studied it a few weeks ago, where Jesus is worthy to be the one that gets either the deed or the plan to rescue everything on earth. It's a sealed scroll, and so Jesus is beginning to open up that scroll seal by seal, rips open a seal. And in our text today, every time that he opens a seal, that is the catalyst for an event within the tribulation period. FYI, if you're a person who scribbles in your Bible or scribbles anywhere or scribbles on the hand of the person sitting next to you, uh, you may want to just jot down Matthew 24. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to people, and he's explaining what's going to happen at the end of the times. And the chronology of events in Matthew 24 that Jesus lays out is lockstep with the events and the chronology of Revelation 6. So Revelation 6 provides a sequence of things that we're taking the perspective will happen during the tribulation period. And Jesus, in Matthew 24, has a big conversation about what's going to happen in the tribulation period that kind of goes sequence by sequence, so just an interesting thing to cross-reference. So, let's jump into it and see the first seal and the first thing that happens during this tribulation period. Revelation 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
the three other horsemen kind of set up within the text itself what is going on, okay? But this one, we need to do a little bit of interpretation because it doesn't exactly give us a reference about what might be going on. Most commentators, when they see what we just read, they think that what's being described is this period of peace. They think it's a period of peace. And there's a little bit of discussion about whether that period of peace comes after a big battle or whether there was this threat of the big battle and these troops were moving in. It was like risk. Remember risk, snow day game. You play the games, you amass all your troops on the edge of Australia. You can swipe over Asia, right? And there's these troops. And some people think there was this threat of this huge conflict that was negotiated away and peace came. Now, whether it was peace after a big battle or peace negotiated in lieu of a big battle, most commentators are all in the same place that seal number one describes this pattern of peace and peace negotiated by somebody. And there's a few kind of clues that they look to it. They look at this word crown. This crown in Roman culture was given to a leader who was victorious. So a victorious leader who would be given some territory, was given a crown, but they also point to the fact that, well, his rider had a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows, so maybe that suggests that there wasn't a fight, right? He comes to conquer and to conquer, so maybe there was. They don't necessarily know, but what they're all in the same place on is there is this period of peace that begins the tribulation that is brought on by a key leader. One commentator summarizes it this way. And he says this. Uh, you can flip to the next slide. Even as final doom approaches, again, this is them taking a futurist view of the tribulation. And I'm not going to say this all the time, but my position, his position could be wrong. But this is what he says. Even as final doom approaches, a person will promise a golden age of peace and prosperity and begin to implement that. In gratitude, the world will honor him or her and elevate them to a position of supreme leadership, but the accolades and peace will be short-lived. The first event, under our view, walking through Revelation 6 of the tribulation, is this period of peace. Peace. Event number one is peace. People are like, man, this is good, right? Enjoying it. But things change pretty drastically when this second horseman and the second event of the apocalypse happens, and we read about that in verses 3 through 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its riders was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword." Moment of peace, everything's cruising around well, but in an instant things change because the second thing rolls into town and it's this moment in time where the peace is gone, right? This permitted to take peace from the earth. No more peace. Instead, people are slaying one another. Now, again, three different thoughts on what the slaying one another means. Some people think it's this huge, massive global conflict, that this is world war, whatever, and it's this nation versus nation, country versus country. Other people don't necessarily think that. They look at the phrase slay one another. They think it's describing civil wars within countries where people of the same nation are killing each other. And a third view is that, man, it's just anarchy. 
It's not a nation fighting a nation. It's not people within a nation fighting a nation in a civil war. But it is just the streets are burning and people are just indiscriminately acting out of violence and killing one another. Violence to others is the second event in the tribulation under the view that we're going with. The second event in the tribulation is violence to others. Could be global war, could be civil war, um, or could just be anarchy. Anarchy. And after that, what follows that um, is the very next seal. And this is what the next seal says. When he opened the third seal, and remember why Jesus is doing this, right? If you weren't here the first week, there's context to this. It seems to see if, if I feel badly because I know some people are coming and going. If you just jump in, it, this could be a very uh, weird sermon to jump into. But we've had literally months of setting this up, right? And what the book of Revelation, what we said is, man, this is a rescue story. The book of Revelation is not solely a book of really bad things. What the big picture the book of Revelation is about is about hope. It's a book of hope, and it's a book of amazing things that are going to come. It's the rescue story where God and his love for us realizes that things are so broken. My life's broken. Your life's broken. Our culture's broken. Our world's broken. The earth itself is broken. And in his love, Jesus never abandons us. God never abandons us. God never walks away from things that aren't going well. Instead, what God has committed himself to do from the third chapter of the book is I'm going to fix it. I love the Coldplay song, Fix You. Great song that gives this image of, man, I will fix you. And, and, and in order to fix something, what we set up a few weeks ago, is if, if you're going to fix something, you got to get rid of what's broken before you put in something new. When you fix things, you don't fix it by keeping all the broken, dysfunctional stuff. That that's not fixing it. Fixing it is this isn't what's working. I will remove that. I will deal with that. I will get out the brokenness so that I can bring in the newness. So that I can redeem, so that I can restore, so that I can make it all new. And the deal with this scroll and the seals is that somebody had to have the authority and the worth and the power and the ability to step into the mess and to fix it. And we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus was that person. And this is either the scroll that he's unsealing is a deed, like I said, that man, Jesus, the earth is yours, the people are not yours. The Father is now giving him complete authority to go claim what is his and to evict the things that ought not to be there. <clears throat> or it is this rescue plan that's written on the scroll that Jesus is going to unroll so that the steps are all laid out about the way to fix this thing and rescue this thing. And it's sealed up. And so in order, before he can take full claim of the earth and fix it, or before he can reveal the plan and implement the plan, man, he's got to deal with some of the things that are broken. He's got to deal with the wickedness. And we said that this tribulation period is a period of time where God is dealing with the wickedness to try to deal with what is broken. And so Jesus has opened up two seals already, right? This is moving toward, this is fixing it. I am not a good mechanic, but I know one thing. I'm not a good construction person. I can say that because my wife's not here today. I'm like, oh yeah, babe, I can fix that. Don't worry. I'll get it done in a day. Ten days later, after David Lemaire has been in my house for like 79 hours, the thing's fixed, right? But I know this. There were some things wrong 
with our kitchen. We wanted to redo it. But if you've ever redone anything in your house, you know what you do first? You do some demo. Before you can get things nice, shiny cabinets, nice little countertops, nice new appliances, you know what you do? This is what I'm really good at. You take a sledgehammer and you knock down all the things that aren't the way they should be. And that leaves a lot of mess. It's a loud process. It's a destructive process. But you've got to go through that process before you can start rebuilding. This is part of that process. And so two things have happened already. There's been this moment, right, where there's been peace, but that peace has been broken by war. And then after that war, what then flows? Well, this is the third seal, the third piece of Jesus trying to deal with it isn't right. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. We know there's something right from this. The text itself tells us there's something going on with food. Wheat uh, and barley were a huge source of food and a food product in that culture, and there's something going on here, and we see scales. And some people think that scales that's being held is symbolic of just commerce, just trade. You know how there's a little blind lady holding the scales of justice that represents the law. Some people think this represents commerce or trade in general. Some people think that the scales are actually indicative of food rationing that you'd only get so much food, and on one side of the scale, they'd put the little weight, and then you'd get a, as much asparagus as matches that weight, and it'd be okay. We, we know it's food, and we know it's a food shortage, because denarius was about a day's wages, okay? And what it's saying is, man, there's going to come this moment, symbolically, where a little bit of wheat, right? A little communion cup full of rice is going to cost you what you make in a day. Now, if I was smarter, I would quickly do the number of hours in a day plus the minimum wage, and I'd do the math. And this was a huge expense for those people. This was high, 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 high food costs. And the reasoning is it's high, high, high food costs because there's a food shortage. And there's a food shortage because there's some sort of famine. And what the people here are saying when they're saying, hey, don't harm the oil and the wine, they're like, and it's like what I'm saying when I saw my daggum natural gas bill this month. It's like, whoa, you're killing me. Please don't hit my cable or my cell phone, right? What they're saying is we can barely pay this. Don't add any expenses to the olive oil or to the wine because then we won't have anything, right? This is high enough. Don't make this any higher. Prices are high because there's a food shortage, and there's likely a food shortage in either globally or different locations because of a famine. And event three of the tribulation seems to be a famine. We've had peace that was interrupted by war. After that war <clears throat> came a famine. You've had some sort of violence. You've had a bunch of people that can't get enough food to eat. And then look at what the fourth horseman of the apocalypse brings with him. Verse 7 of chapter 6. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Interestingly, just for trivial pursuit, that's the line that's quoted in Tombstone. I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the force of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The fourth event after these other three, according to the interpretation and the perspective we're taking, the fourth event is death. Death. And is it figurative? Is it literal? I don't know, but it talks about um, the way that this, this rider had authority over the force of the earth. Some people think that means a fourth of the earth's population is going to die because of what's happened to the battles and the violence and the famine, but according to our perspective, this fourth horseman of the apocalypse, the fourth event that occurs during the tribulation period is death. On this beautiful Sunday morning, here's what you've seen so far. Yeah, here it is. Okay, here's the four things that happen. And I just, we're going to make some observations about this, okay? We're going to get to uh, event five and six next week. We're going to kind of just pause here and spend the rest of our time making a couple, just essentially one big thing, a thought that comes from this. Peace is interrupted by violence to others, which then is followed by a famine, which then is followed by death. You know what's interesting about these things? They build upon each other. They build upon each other. There's peace and violence interrupts that peace. And flowing out of that violence is food shortage because of all the wars. And if you're familiar with wars in different countries where there's been civil wars or guerrilla warfare or coups, there is frequently food shortage because of all the chaos that's happened. And then, because of the violence and the famine, there's death. These things flow out of each other, and interestingly, these things don't just flow out of each other, these things become progressively worse, arguably. They certainly don't become better. There's events in the tribulation that sequentially and progressively lead to another event, and every step that flows from the preceding event is not a step that is a better thing. These things, as part of the tribulation, are kind of judgment on the world, but there's another thing that they are. They're not just a judgment of the world. They are consequences, and they are things that flow from people's natural free choices. These are realities that flow from people who selfishly and in a way where they're not thinking about God, they pursue and they do what they want to do. They chase wickedness, they do evil things, they do selfish things, and the result of humans being able to do what humans want to do is what is behind these things. They're things that build on each other, they're things that each step doesn't get better, they're things that are consequences for sin and evil, but they're also the outcomes of sin and evil. These are the outcomes 
of people just like you and me who make selfish, self-centered, sinful, evil, wicked choices, and we chase that to the nth degree, and left unchecked, this is what we do to ourselves. This is what we do to ourselves. God's allowing it to happen, but we're choosing to be involved in it happening. Consequences for sin, outcomes of sin, causes progressive things to follow. Each thing that follows gets worse, and each thing doesn't get better for the people who are around them or who are victims of this. Now, this is the pattern in Revelation and in our view of the tribulation because we've seen it out of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6. But you know what? More broadly, this same pattern and this same truth and this same reality isn't just seen in Revelation 6. It's seen in my life, and it's seen in your life. The same truth about sin, whether it's described in Revelation 6 to the nth degree or whether it's described in your marriage and your family and your workplace, the same, there's a common principle in that. And, and here's the first reality that we want to think about. It's this, that sin and evil do not make things better. They only build upon themselves to make things worse. Sin and evil do not make things better. They only build upon each other to make things worse. Revelation 6 shows us that, but you know what? We don't need Revelation 6 because we have our own stories. And for some of us this morning, as we think about, okay, Peter, that's great. I got to write down four horsemen of the apocalypse. I thought about wrestling. I know some facts. But maybe you came here this morning because God didn't want you just to know facts about the tribulation. Maybe you came here this morning because God wants to try to get your attention of what's going on in your own life. Because this reality that flows out of Revelation 6 should be a sobering reminder to all of us about how sin works and what sin leads to. This should be a sobering reality to all of us about how sin works and what sin leads to. The sin that you and I start chasing, that we think we can handle, that we think we're going to run after because it's going to make our life better or it's going to make our life easier, will quickly spin out of control. And ultimately, one day, someday, we'll make things worse. It doesn't make things worse on the front end. If, if, <clears throat> if sin made things worse the very first time we did it, guess what? We, if we knew that, we wouldn't do it. We chase sin because for a moment, it tempts us with something. It, it offers us something. It always overpromises and always underdelivers. but you and I buy that promise in the beginning. And we get into something, we chase something, we do something, we pursue something, and we think, man, we can handle this. And, and this is actually going to make it better for me. But one day and someday, it is going to spin out of your control. And it is going to cause damage, not just in your story, but to the story of the people around you. Because what we've seen from Revelation 6 and what we know from our own story is that sin builds upon each other and the outcomes of sin only lead to something that's worse and only leads to something that is more damaging. That lie that you told or I told 
two months ago, guess what? You've got to come up with another lie to cover up that lie. And in another month or two, you're going to have to come up with another lie to cover up with that lie to cover up with another lie and cover up. And it just builds. Lie after lie after lie you've got to keep coming up with. You've got to keep weaving the story because someday you decided, you decided at one point, I'm not going to tell the truth. Because we thought that lying would make it better for us. And we think we could control the lie. But then we got to tell another lie and another lie and another lie. And some of you are really good at it. But I've done this a long time. And what many other people in this room will tell us is that one day, someday, it's all going to come crashing down. You are going to get caught. And if you had just come clean over here then you wouldn't be dealing with the shrapnel and the devastation over here that's been two years' worth of lies just building upon each other. I don't know if this is the lawyer in me, the pastor in me, or the parole officer in me, but I know one thing, and I will bet, I'm so confident of this, I will bet my amazing Toyota foreigner on this. Ready? Here's what I know. Most times, the first story you hear when somebody gets in trouble isn't the whole story. Most times when somebody's caught in something, the first story you hear, it's not the whole story. There's all these other details, but they don't tell all the other details, but the other details so often come out. It builds on each other. One day, some, there's a, be sure your sin will find you out. And one day, someday, it unravels. The gossip that we share because we want to be the people in the know who like, we're the source of info, man, right? We're, we, we got the info, so we're just going to tell you because then we get our own value of a thinking. The gossip that you share to one person, but don't tell anybody I said this, man, they're going to tell somebody. They do. And it's going to go to somebody else, it's going to go to somebody else, and then the person who you talked about is going to figure out you were the one who said it, and it is going to come back to roost. And it's not going to be better. And then there's going to be pain. There's going to be loss of trust. There's going to be a sense of betrayal. There's going to be ways that you wounded that person when what you said may not even be truth because sin builds upon each other and each step that flows from the other step doesn't seem to get better. It is a crazy... It, again... There was pastors in the 1700s who probably talked about how it's a crazy moment in culture. So it's always been crazy, right? But man, there is a, a, lot, there is a lot more stress and anxiety and things people are facing in this moment than I remember hearing about in other moments. And some people, what they do, what we do to try to deal with that is we self-medicate. We're stressed. We're anxious. We got a lot of pressure, we got a lot of bills, we got a lot of things, we can't sleep. So I'm just gonna have a little bit more of a pour of my Chardonnay tonight. I'll just have one more finger full of bourbon before I go to bed. And does the Bible does not prohibit drinking of alcohol. The Bible prohibits drunkenness. The Bible says there's moments to refrain from the drinking of alcohol for a weaker brother or if it goes against your own conviction. But Man, some of you, we're not talking about a manageable glass of Chardonnay with your pasta or whatever. We're talking about you're you're self-medicating and you're addicted. And what started to be something you thought you could manage two years ago, now you're something you're dependent upon. And it's not going to get any better. 
and it's only going to get worse. What we see through Revelation 6 and what we know in our own story is that sin builds upon each other. One sin leads to something else that's not good, that's nothing else that's good, and they all tend to get progressively worse and progressively more damaging. And what's interesting is that's what happens when we're left to our own devices. When we're left to chasing our own sin and our own selfishness and our own evil, that's what, these are the things we cause. And it's really interesting, kind of a second thought that flows out of this is that left to our own devices, you and I on our own, independent of everything else, we are not going to be able to ultimately fix what's broken. On our own, without anything else, just trying harder and being nicer, you and I are not on our own going to be able to ultimately and completely fix everything that's broken. In fact, when we meddle in it, we only tend to make things worse. Many times our natural bend as humans is ultimately things go in a downward spiral. Now, very important call time out here. Because what I just said is true. As a church, we could get together, we could pray, we could try hard, but we're not ultimately going to be able to fix all the problems of the world and redeem the world. You and I cannot create a new heaven and a new earth. You and I cannot glorify ourselves and make us have no sin, okay? That's the truth. Now, this is the danger, though. Right now in some sermons, what some people do and what some people have done generations ago is they say, okay, great. If I can't fix it, Jesus is going to fix it, so I'm just going to disengage from the world around me. If I can't ultimately get better, then I'm not going to take any responsibility. I'm going to go in my little bunker. I'm going to eat a lot of baked beans, figuratively speaking, and I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes back. Okay? That is not what we are called to do. What we are called to do in a world that is going in a downward spiral, what Jesus has challenged us to do is, man, you seek first the kingdom. What he said to us to do is you love your neighbor as yourself. What he has done is he has put you somewhere. And he has said, because of you being there, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your apartment, on your soccer team, in your play dates, at your office, because of you there, I want that space around you to represent God's kingdom a little bit more fully. I want you to live out kingdom values. I want you to love people and care for people and treat people and act with integrity the way that you should act in the kingdom. Just because we cannot ultimately wholly fix everything does not mean that we should disengage from trying to live out Christian lives as a witness to the glory of Jesus and the beauty of the kingdom of God. But what some people do is they say, you know what, I'll just sit here and wait for my flight to come in and I'm not going to do anything, I'm just waiting until Jesus comes back. We're supposed to be living godly lives waiting for Jesus. We're supposed to be prepared and active and working and engaged in the world around us and the lives around us to show God's love, but also to share the truth of the gospel. This is not a call to disengage. It's a call to strive, to reflect God's kingdom in our friendships, environments, and sphere of influence. So what am I doing to do that? Am I doing anything? And I cannot use as an excuse in my own story, well, I preach every Sunday. 
what, that's good. That's what I'm called to do, but I'm also called to be actively engaged in my community and my neighborhood and my relationships with non-Christians to show them what a loving Christian who love your neighbor as yourself. Go into the world and make disciples. What am I doing in my neighborhood, in my relationships, in my community to do that? And what are you doing? What is one place where God has dropped you that if you're a follower of God and a follower of Jesus, maybe the very place that he wants you to live out his kingdom in a more significant way to bring value and to show the people in that place what God's love looks like and what God's truth is. Just because we can't ultimately fix it, ultimately, That doesn't mean that God doesn't work through you and couldn't work through you in amazing ways to do amazing things for his kingdom. It just means you can't do it by yourself. Because the second reality, what this means is that ultimately, I can't fix myself. Ultimately, we can't save ourselves. Ultimately, we can't fix all of the pain and all of the brokenness in the world that comes from sin that our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents decided to do a long time ago and that you and I still decide to do today. Doesn't mean we can't have a role in it, but it means ultimately we can't fix it at the end of the day. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We need somebody to save us and to fix us. We need a Savior, and we have one, and we have one, and his name is Jesus. What this shows us is that sin builds on each other and flows from the prior thing, and it gets progressively worse. And you and I cannot ultimately fix that, but that doesn't mean that we should disengage. It means we should still be actively engaged where we are to try to represent God's kingdom because that's what God asks us to do. And what this does mean, though, is that ultimately we can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a substitute who knew that no matter how hard you try to be good, you'll never be perfect. No matter how many times I read my Bible in the morning or pray in the afternoon or preach a sermon or cuss less, what Jesus knew is that I'll never be perfect. And the standard is perfection and sin separates us from God and God is just. And many of the problems we have as we look around is, God, why aren't you doing something to stop that? Why aren't you dealing with the evil that's around us? Well, guess what? One day God is going to deal with the evil around us. He is. He's waiting because he's waiting for every possible chance for every single person who can turn to Jesus in faith. But one day God is going to deal with it all, all of it. And that means that any undealt with sin in any person God will deal with, which will mean separation from him. But what Jesus did was say, Father, I don't want you to have to punish them. I am willing to go be a substitute for you to punish me. 
because they can't save themselves, but I am willing to give up my own life in order to save them. That's what the story is. And the hope is that if you respond to that, man, you have hope that you are shielded from the wrath that's associated with all this, that you will be in the presence when your story here is over, that you'll be in the presence of God who loves you more than you can possibly know, who sees incredible value in you, who has authored you, who cares for you, who desires you to know Him because that brings glory to Him and it brings the most meaning and satisfaction to you. And that's what God wants for you. But we can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us, and we have that person, Jesus. And he's committed, as we'll see in the rest of the book, to not just saving us, but to saving and fixing it all. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here, and as they do, I'm just going to leave you with two questions today. First question is this, is there a sin issue that you need to deal with today? Is there a sin issue that you need to deal with today? And maybe some of you, when I ask that question, you are cussing yourself that you even came to this place today. You're like, I can't believe I went to Calvary this morning. The coffee was, I love the people who make it, but you know, I mean, I could have just stayed at Starbucks and gotten coffee. And right now, when I ask that question about whether there's a sin issue that you need to deal with today, some of you, it's like, oh. I mean, some of you is like a little poof, because you know there is, and because God knows there is. And guess what? The answer for every single one of us should be yes. <laughs> okay? If I ask the question, is there a sin issue you need to deal with today? And you're like, no. But man, that person in front of me, I saw them texting during church. They better deal with it. If I ask the question, is there a sin issue you need to deal with today? And you said no, guess what? There's a sin issue you need to deal with today. And it is called pride and self-righteousness and good luck with that one. Is there a sin issue you need to do? Seriously, for some of you, I pray genuinely that this is like the daggum train track. You know how the train track signs comes down to cross you from crossing the tracks when the train's about to come and barrel into you? And so that thing comes down, that arm comes down to stop you before the thing hits you that's going to cause damage? Maybe this sermon for you was a train track arm coming down to try to stop you before you keep driving across the tracks where that train of sin is going to hit you. And if it is, don't ignore it. Because sin, not in the beginning, but ultimately, over-promises and under-delivers. Is there a sin issue you need to deal with today so that it does not get worse tomorrow? And the second question is this, and I'll leave you with this, and if this is something you want to talk more, there's going to be some folks in the prayer corner over there. You can ask them any question you want. I'm going to be helping set up for an adult class on parenting in this room, but you can come grab me after and ask me any question, because we'd love to explain this to you. The last, we, at Calvary, I, we work as a team and as elders so hard not to just throw out Christian cliches to you. We want you to understand what the Bible says about the gospel, about the good news. We want it to be clear. We want you to understand substitute. And we want you to feel free like you have space to ask any question about it that you don't understand. Because it, it, it is supernatural. The story of the gospel is not a natural thing. It is a miraculous story. It is a divine story. And so we want to give you space to ask that. And so the second question I ask you is this. Are you trying to save yourself? Or have you trusted Jesus as your Savior, as your substitute? Are you trying to save yourself, or have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? 
And if you want to talk more about that or ask about that or understand that, there's folks in the corner after this lost song. I'll be around. Some of the other folks who've been around on stage, you can talk to. Um, and it's a place where we want to help you process those questions. Next week, we're going to continue to see the next two things that will happen as part of this tribulation as we continue our series in Revelation. We'll think about what does the text say. And then next week, there's some amazingly, continues to be amazingly practical things, not just about the future period, about this period, and some encouragement that can come from the words next week, hopefully, uh, about where we find ourselves. So let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, we know that your word doesn't return void. You promise us that just like rain that comes down from heaven accomplishes its purpose on earth, you tell us that your word, when it goes out, accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent. And so, Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity, uh, the privilege of just opening up your word and preaching to myself and explaining, sharing with us all what it means. And I am grateful for the way that you will work through your word that we've heard this morning. And I pray that in my life and the lives of people in here, Father, that we won't buy into the promises of the deception of sin. And if the Holy Spirit is working on some of our hearts to deal with that sin, Father, uh, we know that no temptation has seized us except that's which comes to man. And when we are tempted, you promise to provide us a way out. And so, Father, for those people this morning dealing with temptation, I pray that your promise will be true and that we know you're giving them a way out, and I pray that they will have the prompting and the courage of the Holy Spirit to take that way out. And, Father, if there's anybody in this space that doesn't know Jesus and is trying to decide who he really is and is it true, can it be believed, I'm thankful for the way that you open up our eyes spiritually and you draw us to yourselves and salvation, and I'm thankful that we can trust you to do that work and pray, and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing in that regard. May we be a body, Father, that knows truth and that lives truth out well and lovingly by impacting and caring for the people around us, and may we do it for your glory. Amen.